It was on March 23, 2010, that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was signed into law. You may better know this law by its more common name of Obamacare. And on that same date, March 23rd of 2010, a number of states filed a lawsuit in an attempt to block the law. Eventually, this lawsuit would be joined by a total of 27 states. So here's the question. Considering it's the states that created the federal government, how could the federal government pass a law that is immediately opposed by a majority of the states? The answer is the 17th Amendment, which in 1913 erased federalism and unleashed the Senate. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. The 17th Amendment, ratified in 1913, changed the way senators are elected. Prior to 1913, senators were elected by and were accountable to the respective state legislatures. After 1913, senators were chosen by popular election. So let's take a look at Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution as originally written. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. This means that up until 1913, federal senators were actually agents or representatives of the respective states, and that all changed with the 17th Amendment. Let's take a read of the 17th Amendment. Section 1. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. Now, there's section 2 and section 3 of that, but for our purposes, section 1 is the relevant text of the 17th Amendment. So, to better understand why the founders chose to have the senators chosen by the states rather than the people, let's start by going back to the Articles of Confederation. Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation dealt with Congress, and here's the text. For the most convenient management of the general interests of the United States, delegates shall be annually appointed in such a manner as the legislatures of each state shall direct, to meet in Congress on the first Monday in November in every year with a power reserved to each state to recall its delegates, or any of them at any time within the year, and to send others in their stead for the remainder of the year. No state 
shall be represented in Congress by less than two nor more than seven members, and no person shall be capable of being a delegate for more than three years in any term of six. Nor shall any person being a delegate be capable of holding any office under the United States for which he or another for his benefit receive any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. So that's the relevant portion of the text I wanted to cover. Notice three key points here. Number one, the states were represented, not the people. It clearly says that no state shall be represented by less than two or more than seven members. So the understanding is the states were being represented in Congress under the Articles of Confederation. Second, the states had control of these delegates. They could recall them at any time. And finally, Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, was unicameral. There was one house. Now, under the Constitution, Congress became bicameral with a House and a Senate. The House was intended to represent the people, and the Senate was intended to represent the states. This is an improvement on the Articles of Confederation, where the people had no representation in the national government. So let's check in with the founders to see what they were thinking when it came to electing members of Congress. In records of the Constitutional Convention, Colonel George Mason summed up his ideas. He said this, We have agreed that the national legislature shall have a negative on the state legislatures. The danger is that the national will swallow up the state legislatures. What will be a reasonable guard against this danger and operate in favor of the state authorities? The answer seems to me to be this. Let the state legislatures appoint the Senate. And it's recorded that in the wake of Mason's comments, the question of appointment by state legislatures carried unanimously. We can also shed some light on the founders' thinking by looking at the Federalist Papers. And in Federalist 39, James Madison had this to say, The House of Representatives will derive its powers from the people of America and the people will be represented in the same proportion and on the same principle as they are in the legislature of a particular state. So far, the government is national, not federal. The Senate, on the other hand, will derive its powers from the states as political and co-equal societies, and these will be represented on the principle of equality in the Senate as they are now in the existing Congress. So far, the government is federal, not national. Now we can see in this passage that Madison is talking about preserving the representation of states that were found in the existing Congress of the Confederation. Here's another passage from Federalist Number 62, also by James Madison. The equal vote allowed to each state is at once a constitutional recognition of the portion of sovereignty remaining in the individual states and the instrument for preserving that residuary sovereignty. So here Madison is making the keen observation that it is important for the states to be represented in the Senate in order to preserve the residuary sovereignty, the powers that are retained by the state and not assigned to the federal government. 
And finally, let's check in with one more author of the Federalist Papers, this from Alexander Hamilton in Federalist number 26. The state legislature, who will always be not only vigilant but suspicious and jealous guardians of the rights of the citizens against encroachments from the federal government, will constantly have their attention awake to the conduct of the national rulers and will be ready enough if anything improper appears to sound the alarm to the people and not only to be the voice but if necessary the arm of their discontent. In this passage Hamilton makes a strong argument for federalism for checking the power of the federal government through the state governments and their power through control of the Senate. This is even more important when you look at some of the powers given to the Senate such as the appointment power to advise and consent anybody that the president may appoint to certain positions or the judiciary, and also to have the final say in treaties. These are important powers that were delegated to the Senate, and by doing that, actually being delegated to the states. So obviously, the founders put a lot of thought into selection of senators, and the checks and balances in their federalist system that serve to pit the power of the federal government against the power of the states to keep both in check. But enactment of the 17th Amendment erased the federalism or separation of powers created by the founders and unleashed the Senate from control by the state legislatures. Under the Articles of Confederation, the people had no representation in the national government. With the 17th Amendment, the pendulum has swung to the opposite extreme and the states have no representation in the federal government today. I use the term national government intentionally because the term federal government was erased by the 17th Amendment when federalism was removed by eliminating the state's control over the Senate. Now let me say in doing my research for this podcast, I've relied heavily on an article by J.S. Bybee. Uh, he's with the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and his article is entitled Ulysses at the Mass, Democracy, Federalism, and the Siren Song of the 17th Amendment. I would encourage you to check the show notes for a link to that article. It's an excellent read on this topic. But J. Bybee identifies three reasons that proponents of popular election of senators advocated for the 17th Amendment. The first reason was corruption in the state legislature. It was often argued that senators would simply buy their seats by bribing state legislators to select them for the position. This was a very popular belief, but by B notes, there was very little hard evidence that this was a big problem. The second issue identified by proponents of the 17th Amendment was deadlock and delay in election of senators. It would sometimes happen that a state legislature could not come to agreement on who their senator would be, and a state would go unrepresented or underrepresented in the Senate. But in reality, this problem was exacerbated by the Senate itself. In December of 1865, the New Jersey legislature elected John Stockton to the Senate but he was elected with only 40 of 81 votes, a plurality, not a majority. 
Although the Constitution didn't specify that the legislature elect by a majority vote, the Senate voted to exclude Stockton and then adopted an act requiring that state legislatures elect senators by a majority vote. So, if this was a concern, the deadlocks and delays, why not just repeal this unnecessary law requiring a majority vote for senators? After all, we've never required that the people in electing senators elect their senators by a majority vote. A third reason Bybee identifies in his article for support for the 17th Amendment is simply populist sentiment. People wanted to be in control, and for populists and progressives, election by the legislature was objectionable. It was elites electing elites, basically. Now, the 17th Amendment, in fact, had an immediate and dramatic impact on the political composition of the Senate. The 17th Amendment guaranteed, also, the ascendancy of a different kind of senator, one whose primary skills are dealing with the masses through public appearances, mailings, and sound bites. But as far as the political composition of the Senate, it had always aligned with state legislatures prior to 1913. But after 1913, the two diverged. After the 17th Amendment, state legislatures no longer held a leveling influence and the Senate was freed from the discipline of the body best suited to recognize the impact of federal le legislation on state laws. That's state legislatures. This was the protection that the founders wisely incorporated into the Constitution. The impact of the 17th Amendment should be obvious when you consider the dramatic expansion of the federal government in the mid-20th century after the enactment of the 17th Amendment, and states were powerless to contain it. Time after time, the states were powerless to stop the federal government's encroachment into their residuary sovereignty in areas like expanding the Commerce Clause or the General Welfare Clause. So let me quote from Bybee's conclusions in his paper. If we are genuinely interested in federalism as a check on the excesses of the national government and therefore as a means of protecting individuals, we should consider repealing the 17th Amendment, limiting the terms of senators serve, and giving state legislatures the power to recall their senators, reestablishing the position of state legislatures together with recall authority would effectively return the practice of instruction and engage state legislatures as a serious and proximate check on Congress. Limited terms would encourage the kind of natural ambition among state legislators that would command their attention to national affairs, while the flow of state legislators or other state officials to the Senate with the foreknowledge that they would be returning to the state as citizens, would reinforce the interests of the state. The Senate's slide to popular democracy unyoked states and the national government in a way that has left the states nearly powerless to defend their position as other legitimate representatives of the people. As the United States moved into the 20th century, it was inevitable 
that Congress would aggressively exercise power over matters such as commerce and spending for the general welfare in ways that no constitutional prophet would have foreseen. The lack of foresight of the circumstances under which Congress would exercise its powers did not excuse our failure to maintain those constitutional structures that assure the tempered, essential use of such powers. So let's go back to the example of Obamacare from the introduction to this podcast. Had the 17th Amendment never been ratified and senators were still accountable to the states, the 27 states which opposed Obamacare could simply have instructed their senators to vote no. Problem solved. No need for a lawsuit to contest a law that the majority of states did not want. So let's conclude with a little bit on the 17th Amendment and Article 5. Bybee notes that the 17th Amendment affected Article 5 directly, but not formally. It took from the states a means of defending themselves against unwise amendments, and it severely limited the power of the states to amend the Constitution without a state call for a convention. It has thus made Article 5 conventions more likely since the states cannot instruct senators to propose and support amendments. In effect, the 17th Amendment has left us with an Article 5 Convention of the States as our last and best hope for restoring federalism and gaining control of an out-of-control national government. And it's germane to the Convention of States resolution as a restraint on federal power by restoring representation of the states through the Senate. So, let's do that. Let's call a convention of the states and propose a repeal of the 17th Amendment. By doing so, we can restore federalism and put that much-needed leash back on the Senate. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition. To let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends. <laughs>